Spoken Word, half an hour of poetry and performance, your connection to Melbourne's grassroots poetry scene, the voice of those of us who have nothing but our voices. Good morning and welcome to the 3CR Spoken Word Programme. My name is Di Cousins and today I'm interviewing Carolyn Maisel about her new book, Moorings. So welcome, Kaz. Thank you so much. Yeah, look, it's very wonderful to see a full-length book um, coming out and uh, with such a, a breadth of poetry in it from so many different parts of your life. I think when you um, publish a book, your first collection when you're older... You do put together a lot of poems from different parts of your life and it was quite a challenge to think how I was going to organise the poems in it because it's not organised according to any overriding theme, for example. Yes, so how did you organise the poems? Um, I organised it in reverse chronology, really. Um, Not absolutely, but I grouped the poems in three sections which corresponded to three different places So uh, Melbourne when I was young, England and Canada when I was older, and then Melbourne again. So returns, exile and moorings Yes, is the way that it goes. Yes, so a profound sense of place is in in the work. Always. So uh, now this is your first full-length book, but you had a book of hours before, and um, we did an interview about that. We'll just sort of talk a little bit about that. Well, that was a, a, different, a different kind of enterprise altogether. That was quite a unified collection. That was 24 poems that followed a, a life in the city for various people who I suppose were uh, disadvantaged in inner Melbourne, in Fitzroy, where we are. And uh, the time sequence was a day and night and back to morning again so that that was 24 hour cycle when I came to collect this book of poems I got to the point where I knew I had enough poems um, and they were they were around the place and I thought I really need to put them together and submit them so one weekend I got up and (laughs) did nothing else I did that I I put the manuscript together finally Collecting the poems hadn't been so important to me, but I finally thought I really should do this. And I thought, uh, at that point, uh, Jen and Dara Press were publishing 48-page volumes, and I thought that I would be asked, if all went well, to cut uh, some poems in the way that I had to cut for a book of hours, and I was astonished when I didn't have to do that. It's very flattering. I was know. very <laughs> pleased. Yes, but it's a great affirmation when everybody says, no, nothing to cut. Yes, then you go, well, maybe I wouldn't have put this one in. Or yes. Should I? Yes, but then, then it's too late, which is a good thing. Hmm. <laughs> I, I once gave a draft manuscript to Judith Rodriguez and I said, now tell me what to leave out. And she, did, she didn't, she said, no, nothing to leave out. And then later on someone else said, well, you'd better leave that out. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Was that a good thing to leave out? Well, it'll find its moment. Yes. 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 So, um, and now you and I are both students of Judith Rodriguez. Yes. 
And uh, so did she, I think she, she suggested Ginandera Press to you, didn't she? I think it was actually uh, Richard. Okay. Uh, who another student. Another student, Richard Wrigley, who is a very accomplished poet, um, who had submitted his manuscript to Ginandera Press and they had published his book. So I thought, oh, I must, I must really do something about this. And so I did it. That group in which we've both met has been incredibly helpful because uh, it's a very high, high caliber group of poets, working poets. And then, and, and, and it's been very helpful to have one's work scrutinized um, and put under pressure by that group of people um, and to be able to ask questions, you know, does this line get cut? Uh, what should I do about the punctuation here? Um, and, and you'll get a very forthright answer always, which is very helpful, I found. Yes, I think that, um, you know, finding the community of poets is absolutely central to being able to write successfully because it is because we do need feedback from others and people who know about poetry, not just, you know, your mother or someone. I mean, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've been, yeah. I've been very lucky I would have. I mean, at, at one point there's a, a poem, um, aerial footage in this collection where I was trying to learn to write, you know, better iambic pentameter and I think Chris Wallace Crabb sat down and gave me a master class, which was very wow. helpful, you know, so... People are helpful, but the feedback can be very sparse. So to belong to a group um, can give you a lot of confidence. Yes, I, I find it essential. It, it's, uh, and it also forces you to turn up every month with something. Yes. So, so that sort of helps push the productivity. It does. Yes. Okay, so would you like to read a poem? I think I will start reading that one. Aerial footage, I ended up calling it. I'm terrible with titles, and the title comes last, and and I find them difficult. And uh, I think all my poems could be called Epiphany, which is why they never win anything. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so in this poem, to introduce it, I, it's a, it says a, an homage to Michel de Certeau, who wrote a fabulous essay called Walking in the City. And here I've put him in the poem... And instead of looking over Manhattan during the day from the top of the uh, World Trade Center, which is how his essay begins, I've put him in at night. And I just wanted to show people how much the media changed after 9-11. So I had the privilege of actually going into the World Trade Center and going up to the top and looking at that view which not everybody will have now, and finding it absolutely terrifying. I could barely get out of the lift. I was so high up. Mm. Um, but I wanted to say something about that. So, a French philosopher went up the tower to spurn the matchless view. In principle, New York City sparkled at his feet. How to convince them of their value down there, the spontaneity of life on the street, its chaos, brio, democratic lack of vista, whereas up here, perilously close to the eyeball of God, that insatiable designing orb, you could forget it all and just hang like a planet while the lights went out. He looked at the moon. It wasn't having any. Never one for rancour, 
or anything much, serene or lobotomized, presiding over everything with an equal mind, a vacant city sailing in the void, a brave philosopher's last seminar, another crumpled tower for the set, and another, eyes filled with horror at the moon-cold scene, compelled by repetitions of the spectacle. Now we're only given distance shots, jumping, screaming, drowning, strictly forbidden, all cities, all countries, unreal, if we believe the footage. Well, we don't. Our life and death as citizens depends on peopling empty landscapes, seeing ghosts, rebuilding dwellings with gardens, pets and food and drink in the teeth of the mindless grin of the moon. The world's a jewel in space, but nobody's fooled. Amazing. Great work. Thank you. Thank you. They're not all that dark. (laughs) Shall I read a fun one? Yes. Um, This is the first poem in the book, and it's for Uncle Jack Charles. Um, When I first saw the movie Bastardy, which came out in 2008, um, although this poem was written this year, last year, um, in 2008 Bastardy came out, and um, Uncle Jack was talking about hiding in gardens in Kew um, without being seen because he was being a cat burglar. And he said, he pointed to a bed of agapanthus and he said, there's always these and you could always hide here. And I thought, this is my kind of person. He sees the suburbs and the, you know, the absolutely direly boring suburb of Kew and um, the, the inner city in terms of imagination. And I felt very drawn to him. So I dedicated this poem to him. It's called In Spaces Between. She sits meekly in the back Ankles crossed, hands clasped, defying interference. She has only to look out to ride the cow catcher in front of the tram, then the footboard, then grab the passing car door handle with three fingers and, feet first, float her body straight up like a kite or spring from roof to roof across the crumbling city, hiding behind awnings, sleeping by train lines, quiet as dirt, safe from all lassoing eyes. They've not even caught a glimpse of her, free as a cartwheeling, wind-blown seed. That's incredible. Now, tell me about this poem. Well, I think even if you're constrained, as I surely was as a female child, your imagination is free. And even though you have to sit in the back of the car... It's sometimes a good idea to be obedient and do what you're told because then they leave you alone and your mind is free. And so on the one hand, I'm sitting in the back of the car and on the other hand, I'm riding the front of the tram. I'm floating my body up above a car. I'm springing from roof to roof. I'm having a great time, uh, a great mental athletic time in the city. And I, I felt... Uh, I felt very close to Uncle Jack, who would take a piece of a piece of edging, and I'd think, "Well, I don't know what that's for," and it ended up being a, a, a tool probably for burgling. But having a sort of similar kind of imagination, I admired that a lot. Yes, well, it's. Um, I mean, imagination is central to creativity, and um, there are so many forces in the world that 
constrain our imagination that tell us what is and isn't possible and uh, who are we to say what is and isn't possible mm. you know we don't know mm. you know and, and certainly until we imagine something we don't know what can can and can't be done yeah and I, I see Uncle Jack as a very inspiring athlete of the imagination he's a bit of a renaissance man the old certainly Uncle is. Jack yes, yes. Now, there was a wonderful poem, Aphasia, that uh, we might have a look at. Okay. Um, this is one of my favourite poems, too. It's, a, um, it's not short, so just to warn the listener. Um, it's called Aphasia, Exile, Outlawry. One. One of those nights, you and sleep playing tag, though only one of you thinks it's a game. I will rest, you say. I will go home. I just need to find the words from the water garden. You haul them up from the well, but they smear like ink. They belong to your real life that you abandoned. There where the wattles bloom and corn and taters grow. Eucalypsus, apocalypsis. Every night you make a run for home. In exile, language fades away unused, till the whole tree languages. Words are comfortless as bare boards. You pace about forgetting what you came for till some new nick or syllable stumps your softened feet and thrills you to the quick. You have to believe the long-sought words will come like Bo Peep's proverbials safely grazing a suburban garden full of virtual magpies. Plumbago, Frangipani, Hardenbergia. Two. All photos lie, but something's caught in this one. Faster than a speeding bullet, a flying blur in tabard and trousers. If you're caught, it's waiting and preparing and serving. Left alone, you climb trees and run fast and sing. Pledge fealty to the forest and the life of an outlaw. Peep, 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 cry all the little girls from the West Indies, America and Spain. We're nearly three in the wizard words on which we know the universe depends. We repeat, we hear you loud and clear. We're pretty sure you can't hear us at all. Maid Marian's maids are we. If you call, we are not at home. We're dining very publicly with the Sheriff of Nottingham. The Sheriff has a fulsome set. His words line up without a gap. He'd sentence us without a second thought. It's just as well he cannot hear our hearts. Peep, 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 all the women cry in Ireland and Australia and France. It's just as well he cannot read our smile. Our voices are inviolate and clear. Three, this table's had hard use. The grain is coming through in tiny elevations. I run my fingers lightly up and down, learning the long contours, and I know something about how my life has gone. This evening I've been marking papers on the colonised and their oppressors, their strategies, my strategies, fully theorised and on my shelf, lest I forget. You know what happens to outlaws, such is life. So don that pencil skirt, sharpen your nose, powder the old peruke, and remember you can never be lost, knowing home is any place where poems are. And that's just the most beautiful last line ever, really. Home is any place where poems are. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) I think 
Writing poetry for me is a bit like tightrope walking. It's very hard to say the thing that you exactly want to say. And I, I didn't start off the way that many poems start, poets start by writing formal things. Well, I did when I was a kid, but I gave up rhyme when I was 11. And uh, many poets start by writing formal verse and then move to free verse, and I went the other way. And I think it's been so hard for me to say what I mean, not in terms of form, but just in terms of what I have to say, that uh, I don't think I could have been a poet if I'd had to do it in formal verse. Yes. Well, I, I remember the era of rhyme from my very early childhood, and it was such a liberation when we discovered poetry that was beyond rhyme mm. and that found the poetry in the image and in the uh, in, in the conjunction of images and in the the meanings between things. Yes, it was so modern mm. and so liberating. Yes. So yeah, I'm grateful that we, we moved beyond that. And, I mean, more ancient poetry, you know, Chinese or Indian poetry doesn't have rhyme. It was just a very stilted structure that, uh, you know, words were made to fit into. Mm. Well, um, I grew up learning Hebrew for five years as well, so I thought that that was interesting, and that would have been the same year I would have started learning Hebrew at the same year that I learnt to read English. So that's also interesting. So I have those rhythms, the Hebrew Bible, and right. those rhythms also in my head. But does that have a, um, a, a meter? Or it has repetition. It doesn't have meter, but it has a lot of repetition and yes. very chiming rhyme because everything agrees with itself. Um, I've used that a little bit in one poem called... It's Spring in Melbourne with Doves, it's called. Let's hear that one. Okay. Like parents we wait while the season does its awkward flip, heads bent in the gale driving cloud shadows across the page, as if we needed another prophecy. Wind tires in the roof fence, a cube of space forms round us and comforting sounds. Our crotchety dogs resume their dialogue with distant quavers, Demi-semi-quavers, till a helicopter, hummingbird from hell, burrs all thought and ratchets up and away, leaving doves mad, repetitious purring. New research shows city birds call louder. Today they're the only thing that doesn't sound like something else you can't escape. Ipse, same, the self-same birds telling all their lives in that same sound, as though condemned to the residue of speech. Wait. Remember Robert Duncan. How, when he learned of the stroke that killed the words in HD, beloved poet mentor, he turned to the er language of doves, hearing there the originary word. Something's a flutter. Dog among the pigeons? What you doing with that metaphor? Taboo, trafe, two thousand years. Who do you think you are, Paul Simon? And on and on, patrolling the dream ground. Jokes aside, I'd give a bucket of dreams for a minute with the minstrel of all the world. He's pulled out the knife that divides us and mines for song in the sight of the wound. Hallelujah, good for him. So far I feel compelled to leave it in. 
It's not that you could undo understanding, a style of understanding. It's what you say, as collared doves should not be here but are, invaders, refugees or immigrants or offspring of same, conceived in St. Petersburg, born in Bendigo, glad to be here, bobbing their heads side by bright-eyed side out there on the bricks, Despite their interminable, double-cadenced cry, there's every sign they're making sense of it all. Yes, well, I think um, birds always have great metaphorical power. They certainly do. They're very handy. Yeah. Um, In Tibet, different kinds of birds are seen as different kinds of omens. So, uh, you know, the advent of a particular bird has a particular cause and condition attached to it. Yeah, in Aboriginal culture too, mm. you know, what birds are around when somebody's born. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, you're listening to the 3CR Spoken Word Program and my name is Di Cousins and I'm talking to Carolyn Maisel about her book Moorings, which is a brand new poetry book. Now, Kaz, tell me again, um, how did it take you so long? You've been <laughs> writing all your life, you know, um, to get your first full-length book together. What, what stood in the way? I kept moving countries. Life got in the way. When you put something like this together, you know there there are poems that turn up that you haven't seen for ages, and then there are poems that you look at and that you always intended to publish and go, no, that's that's not going in there. So I almost had the poems together already in an order by the time I decided that I was going to put them finally in a manuscript, and I'm very glad I did. Yes. Um, It's very freeing to publish a collection because it frees you to do the next thing and already that's going much faster, of course, than this ever did. I don't think I've got another lifetime's worth of uh, time to to, uh, put out another slim volume. I think I have to go faster than that. Yes, well, I think that um, there's a certain kind of coming out in a sense when you put out Mm. your first full-length book that... You know, we all have a thousand identities and, uh, and and seeing the book, you know, there is no question about I am a poet and this is my work and here it is and it's out in the public domain. That's been very nice for me to do finally. Yes, and, and I know there are so many constraints on our lives that take us away from that, that mm. say they're more important and more pressing, but it's great to find that space where that, can be realised. Yes, to do something for yourself. And, and I'm so grateful to Stephen and Brenda Matthews at Gin and Dara Press for, for taking a punt on me twice, really. Great, um, yeah. yeah. And where can people buy Moorings? They can buy it at the Brunswick Street Bookshop, um, would be the, the immediate place, um, and in Readings Carlton and in Readings Hawthorne. Isn't that good? Yes. Great. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, so what's the next poem? Um, The next poem will be, I think I'll read a poem about London. Shall I do that? Yeah, that sounds good. London, a leaden sound, convergence of streets and meaning, clumped and insoluble like a fist in the pit of your stomach. Something gets under your fingernails, clots at the root of your hair like spittle and tar congealed on the pavement, plaster grotesqueries crusted in terminal grime. It's all finished, it's history, the sheer monuments of will 
testaments of civic desire, all completed public projects, eon upon eon as far as you can see. Deep in your bones you know the whole thing's built on rubbish. But you continue, always in shadow, to walk between walls, cling to the clefts between heights, always in shadow the body continues to contract as with cold and the mind is released from form. So you breathe in the shallow rustications of brick, crouch behind gargoyles, thieve what you can, though iron bars bulb the windows of your eyes and doors deadbolt like gunshot. No one gathers fuel in vacant lots. You can't burn that stuff at home. It's against the law. And anyway, it won't catch. There's a tremendous mood captured in this poem of um, always in shadow, to walk between walls, cling to the clefts between heights, always in shadow. My body continues to contract as with cold. Is a, a great sort of mood atmosphere you've captured here. Thank you. It's really an extension of the the, the first poem in in the book, uh, the poem where the little girl sits in the back of the car and rides the front of the trams. Really, <laughs> <laughs> right. It, except it's happening older and in London and with the knowledge of T. S. Eliot. <laughs> yes, right. Um, now we've got time for one more poem. What would you like? Well, I I really liked In Memoriam Francis Baker. I would love to read that. Francis Baker was an academic at the University of Essex and when he became very ill and died, uh, it was pointed out to me by my PhD supervisor that Francis was the first person that he knew that had been born and died in the 20th century, in the second half of the 20th century. So he died young. Oh, how old was he when he died? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how old he, he was, but he had been ill and, and not looked after himself and died. And we're all very shocked. Um, and I came back from Manchester where I was teaching to go to this funeral. And he was a very strong presence, as I hope I make clear. Oh, and he wrote a book called The Tremulous Body, which I think there's a bit of tremulousness in this poem. In memoriam, Francis Barker. There was never a man sat stiller, all in black and ankle crooked on knee, never a man whose silence compelled us more to thought and questioning, dark lodestone, whose every effort availed him not a tittle in his battle with his calling, latter-day divine, intriguing as a riddle, a bloody blade of a mind, yet patient, teaching us the computer, listening to our half-formed questions, explaining deconstruction in words like slow fuses, standing at the lectern to denounce the idea of a university totting up success in bricks and books, till the managerial sentences of the anniversary prospectus toppled at the touch of his voice and ours in raveled laughter. I have kept these lessons by me nine years now, weapons or gifts to hold that tremulous place where the tongue falters and the throat constricts, gathered together at the edge of the year, too soon, too late this dismal morning, we stand up straighter to be counted. Wonderful. 
Um, it's, uh, it's, it's so important, I think, the elegy as a form, you know. It is, and it's so complicated, the right. elegy. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's, it's such a valuable thing to have that uh, memory, that record, but in a, in a form that, you know, captures an essence, which is the things that are the most important about that person mm. and and therefore is able to convey that sense of the person better than a long description. Yes, I mean, we all need our aids in combating managerial culture. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, and I, I just felt so much sympathy for anyone who wants to denounce the idea of a, a university totting up success in bricks and books. <laughs> They always tell you how many books there are. And, you know, in Australia, they always tell you it's the biggest whatever in the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, yeah, always. <laughs> it's the same. Yes, it it's is. It's the same thing. It yes. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's been a delight to have you. Thank you for coming on the program. Thank you so much for having me. And um, so this, you've been listening to the 3CR Spoken Word program, and I've been talking to Carolyn Maisel about her new book, Moorings which is available at all good bookstores and it's published by Ginandera Press. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.